good. Last time I just started talking over it. So last week we started talking about, we started a new series about the Bible. And uh, you've probably seen maybe in a protest where people on both sides of the protest hold up uh, quotes from the Bible or verses from the Bible. And you're like, wait a minute, same book, two different sides. Or maybe you've seen politicians say, because the Bible says this, I'm going to vote this way. And then someone on the other side of the aisle says, because the Bible says something different, I'm going to vote this way. And, you know, we know in history, the Bible was the emphasis for crusades where thousands of innocent people were killed and their land was taken. But then the Bible's also been the emphasis for people to start hospitals and actually help people who are in need. And you say, how can this one book be so paradoxical? How can it make some people do things that we were like, that's amazing. And then other people look at it and we're like, what are they doing? Like, how did they get that from this? And so we're, over the next few weeks, going to be doing a series about what is the Bible, how do we use it, and why should we care? Because you might be in a place where you say, okay, people talk about the Bible all the time, but why is it such a big deal? Does it even matter to my life? And so we're going to get to that. But last week we talked about our first message in what is the Bible, and we talked about the difference between the Old and New Testaments. If you've been familiar with the Bible at all, you probably recognize it's broken into two parts. And if you've always had questions about, like, why does the Old Testament seem like this and the New Testament seem like this, our message is up on our website. You can go listen to it. We kind of explain why there's these two separate parts to the Bible that come together for one whole. But this week, we're continuing our theme about what the Bible is by talking about the fact that the Bible is Jewish. It's overwhelmingly Jewish, which is not the first thing you think of when you pick up a Bible in America. You don't immediately think, man, this is a Jewish book. We think it's an American book, or it's a Christian American book. We don't think of it as being Jewish. But the majority of the Bible is written by Jews for a Jewish audience and with reference to Jewish heritage and culture. And the Old Testament is still used by our Jewish friends today. We have synagogues all around us in this community, and they're still using the same Old Testament we are. They call it the Tanakh, or sometimes they'll say it's the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And even in the New Testament, there's over 800 references and direct quotes from the Old Testament. And the only New Testament book that's not written by a Jew is Luke and Acts, which were both written by the Greek Luke. See, our assumption when we come to this book, and the reason I think there's so much misconceptions about what the Bible is, and when there's misconceptions about what it is, we end up misusing it, as we see all the time in our world. I think our assumption is this was written for us. Now, I think it applies to us, but we have to remember it wasn't written to us. It was written for a different people at a different time. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. It was not written into English. It was translated into English. So some things get confusing in translation. And we need to understand the original context and culture of the people that it was written to if we're going to grapple with this book, if we're going to understand it. And you might ask, Alex, why does it matter who it was written to? What is, does the audience of a message really matter? Well, take, for instance, this hypothetical letter. Imagine there was a letter, and it said, Dear Lydia, I can't wait to see you love John. Okay, imagine this letter's been written. What if Lydia is the wife of John? Well, then you're like, oh, they're separated. Maybe he's working far away. Maybe he's at war, and they've been away from each other, and he longs to be back home. The audience matters there, right? That helps us understand it. But what if Lydia is a mistress? 
Well, now all of a sudden we don't like John. We're like, ah, oh, he's an adulterer. He's a bad guy. It changes the whole context of the letter. The letter hasn't changed at all. Now, if Lydia is his dead grandmother, all of a sudden we think, oh man, maybe John's sick and he's going to die. Or maybe his grandmother just died and he misses her. And so the audience completely changes the meaning of the letter. That letter didn't change at all. It was the exact same words. But who he's writing to matters because it ends up affecting everything about the meaning. You've probably seen when American movies are released in different, um, different regions, they put up very different movie posters. Have you guys seen this? I think, uh, Austin, do you have the picture for me? So this was the original Star Wars movie, and on the left is what the poster that was released in America. Now look at this poster over here on this other side. That would be your right. That was the poster for the same movie released in Russia. Now, if I saw that poster, I would not imagine I was about to go see Star Wars, you know? But apparently they thought, people in Russia don't want to see this movie about people pointing laser guns and, you know, robots and stuff. What they really want to see is like an iron leopard looking creature with pyrotechnics coming out of his head. You know, they thought this is what will sell this movie. But can you imagine walking into that movie and being like, what in the world is going on? Where's the robotic lion head with pyrotechnics? And so I think when we approach our Bible, they've made it look like it's a Western book, right? We've got a nice cover on it and it's all put together nicely. And so we approach it and we're like, this is made for us in the West. Look how nicely it's put together. It's bound. They've essentially marketed it to us as Americans. But the reality is it wasn't written like that. You know, if you look at the original, it looked like this. They had wrote it on scrolls in this Middle Eastern backwoods country called Israel. And um, if, if you approached this every day and people like, read your Bible, you'd be like, this is weird. Like, you, you'd be like, I'm looking at something foreign. I'm looking at something unusual. You're going to approach it like, this isn't normal. This isn't made for me. I'm going to have to look at this as an outsider trying to look inward. And because we've tried to make the Bible seem Western, because we printed it and bound it and made it seem like it's Western, we approach it like, oh, it's made for us, and we can approach it like we do any other book that's been written for us. But it has a uniquely Eastern flavor to it, and that's why many times we misuse it because we don't recognize the Jewishness of it, the Middle Eastern influences that are at work in this book. Some of the confusion is simply because we come at it with a very Western way of thinking, and the Bible is written with a very Middle Eastern way of thinking. And so a lot of our confusion about what the Bible is trying to do, what it's trying to say, and why you see people misusing it all the time is they're approaching it thinking, I think like this, and the authors of the Bible thought like this, and so I can understand it. And what they don't recognize is they were coming from a different point of view. Many times we think that we are the center of human history, and many times we think that we are the smartest, uh, most educated people on earth, and that our approach for everything is the best approach. And that's simply not always true. The, the central people and throughout scripture here become the Jewish people who are a platform in the Old Testament for Jesus to come and reveal the presence of God to the world. And then even in the New Testament, we still see lingering effects of their heritage and culture all throughout the early church as the first followers of Jesus are beginning to come together into um, organized congregations. 
the Bible ends up being, from Old Testament to New Testament, all the way through, full of Jewish themes and words and ideas. And the Jewishness of the Bible was an early source of contention for followers of Jesus. And we're going to look at that in just a minute as we look at this passage in Scripture. And historically, what you see is some of the, the first Christian leaders saying some really dumb things about the Jewishness of the Bible and the Jews in general. And because you might, be in, you might be asking, so Alex, if the Bible's written from an Eastern perspective, if there's just Jewish cultural ideas and heritage all over it, how come we don't talk about that more often? How come we don't talk about the Jewishness of the Bible so much? Well, because there were some tension points early on in the church about that. And if you look at some of the, the early Christian fathers who wrote um, and were early Christian leaders, 150 years after Jesus, Tertullian, I've read some of his theology, great, brilliant mind. He said, all Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus. And he says, so we need to reject everything Jewish. Origen, who lived just a little bit after him, he said that anyone who is Jewish is responsible for killing Jesus. The Council of Elvira, which was an early church council around 300 years after Jesus, they prohibited any Christian from sharing a meal with a Jew, marrying a Jew, praying for a Jew, or observing any Jewish customs. And so you see these early Christian leaders, even though they love Jesus, they're like, we need to stay as far away from Jews and Judaism as we can and any type of Jewish thought. And so they tried to look at the Bible outside of any kind of Jewish context. And replacement theology became really popular. You say, Alex, what the heck is replacement theology? Why do I care about that? Essentially, they said, well, we'll go back through the Bible, and everywhere it talks about Israel or anything Jewish culturally, we'll just pretend it's talking about the church. It's always a dangerous thing when you're like, this letter wasn't written to me, but I'm going to pretend that it was. You know, you could get yourself into trouble if you're reading someone else's letter, and it's like, congratulations, you just won $10,000. John Smith, and you're like, my name is not John Smith, but I want that $10,000, so I'm going to say it applies to me. It's not a smart way to do it. You're not going to be able to cash that check. See, when you divorce the Bible from its Jewish context and culture, you always get confusion. So why did they do this? Why were they so distant from Judaism? Why do we avoid talking about the Jewishness of the Bible? Well, in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16, we get some of the tensions in the early church. This is about 20 years after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. And it says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Some translations say Cephas. It's another name for Peter. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the Jewish church in Jerusalem, the first Christian church. He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's a, that's a weird name, right, for a group you're like, I'm the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
And you say, Alex, what is going on here? What is all this about? Well, here's what was happening. The first followers of Jesus were all Jewish. They were all Jewish. And so there was this group of uh, believers in Jerusalem, and they were all Jewish. And then what happened was they began telling some of their Gentile neighbors about Jesus. And this man, Paul, who wrote Galatians here, he began traveling around to non-Jewish nations and telling them about Jesus and saying, Jesus didn't come just for the Jews. He came for everyone. He wants everyone to experience the presence of God. And the Jewish people back in Jerusalem were like, we were the first Christians, and it makes us a little bit nervous that we don't know what's going on or who's in control or what's happening over here. And so there became this tension point where Peter was like, I want other people to follow Jesus, to live in love like Jesus, to be students of Jesus' way of life. But I also want to keep my Jewish heritage friends happy. And so it was an early tension point. And Paul said, you don't have to become Jewish to follow Jesus. And Peter was like, that's right, but I don't want to say it too loudly because some people will get mad about that. And you see Peter here, he's hanging out with the non-Jewish people who have followers of Jesus, and they're eating together and having a good time, and then some really strict Jewish brothers come in, and he's like, oh no, I never hang out with the, with the non-Jewish people. And that's what Paul's calling out here. And he says, look, you don't have to be Jewish to follow Jesus. Understanding Jewish customs will help you better understand what Jesus was teaching and where he was coming from, but he's like, you don't have to be a, a Jewish person to follow Jesus. In fact, there were people, and you'll see this in much of the New Testament as Paul writes these letters, there were these people who were traveling around and people would hear the message of Jesus. They're like, I'm going to become a student of the way that Jesus lived in love. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. And they began living it out. And then these people would come in, they're like, we're from Jerusalem. And they're like, oh, okay. They're like, we're from the first church. And let us tell you, you need to be circumcised, you need to keep these Jewish customs, you need to become Jewish if you really want to follow Jesus. And so this was an early tension point in the church. They were fighting over this. They were like, the Bible is so Jewish, can you be non-Jewish and still follow Jesus? And what they ultimately decided was, yes, understanding Judaism will help you better follow Jesus. But they said, you don't have to be Jewish to follow Paul said that over and over again in Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. He keeps writing these letters to these groups of people telling them, you don't have to be Jewish to follow Jesus. But recognizing the Jewishness of Jesus helps you become a better student of the way that he lived and loved. Now, what does the church do when we take an extreme position on something and we recognize it's wrong? We swing in the other extreme position. We don't go back to the balance like we should. And so here's what the church did. For a long time, they were like, maybe we should be completely Jewish to follow Jesus. And Paul kept saying, no, you don't have to become Jewish to follow Jesus. And so the church did this. Okay, we'll want nothing to do with Judaism. We'll pretend that all Jewishness is wrong and we'll just ignore it all. And that's what you have these first couple hundred years after Jesus. And you see, even during the Reformation, a thousand years later, where, oh, look, we're still trying to distance ourselves from Judaism, even though there's this Jewish element, history, and um, thinking that runs throughout the whole Bible. And here's some of the differences, okay? In the Hebrew language, there's 45,000 words. In the English language, there's about 110,000 words, which means that the Jewish language is much more ambiguous in how it says it. It doesn't have a specific word for everything, so it uses poetic language. In English, we can say something very specifically because we have more words. The Hebrew
Hebrew language and the Hebrew writers, they tried to design things to convey ideas and create areas for meditation and mystery. They wanted to create a space where you had to wrestle with something and what do we do as Western thinkers? We're like, how can you say it shorter? How can you say it clearer? How can you say it simpler? And the Jewish writers, they were always focused on how can we create a space where you'll be curious and you'll enter into a mystery and you'll have to wrestle with it. That's very frustrating to Western readers. And many times you've probably read the Bible and you're like, why don't you just say what you mean? Like, why are you running all around in like circles? Because they're Hebrew writers. They want to create a space where you say, hmm, I wonder what they mean by that. And they want you to run around in that space for a while. We're like, just give me the Cliff Notes version so I can move on to the next part. Give me what I need so I can build onto it and get to the next point. And they say, oh, no, no, don't rush. I want you to sit and ponder on it. Very different thinking between the East and the West. They're not so worried about you instantly getting to the right answer as they are about you becoming the right person as you spend time in the text trying to figure out what they're trying to convey. And I think the distance between where we are and where the Bible is isn't an issue so much of time as it is culture. And I hear people say all the time, that Bible was written so long ago, it doesn't apply today. I don't think the distance is the issue. Because the more I read this, I'm like, oh, I know somebody just like that. And then the next page, I'm like, oh, I'm just like that. You know, I'm like, people haven't changed. But what has changed for me is I come at the Bible with a very Western way of thinking. And the Bible is written from a very Eastern um, thought process and uh, starting point. Here's just some of the differences between Western thinking and Eastern thinking. In Western thinking, thin is beautiful, right? If you're thin, that's beautiful. Eastern thinking is fat is a blessing, and it means that you're rich. If you're fat, that means you had enough food to eat. And so you are rich and blessed by God. Western thinking is youth is attractive. Everybody wants to look young. In Eastern thinking, you want to look older because it shows age. Age is wisdom, and so it's a good thing to get older. Western thinking is, does God really exist? I don't know. I don't really know if he exists. Eastern thinking is, that's not even an issue. They're asking, whose God is the greatest? You go to the Middle East right now, you're going to find few people who say, I just don't think there's a God. You'll have some people who say, Allah is God, and you'll have some people who, who say that the, the Hindu gods are God, and you'll have some who say that the Hebrew God is God, and you'll have some who say that Jesus is God, but they're not asking, does God exist? That's a Western question that we're asking. Western thinking is about me, my personal goals and ambition. Eastern thinking is about we. What is my family's legacy and ambition? What does my family want to be known for? And so the Bible is coming from this Eastern point of view that's very different. In the um, Western point of view, we think of sunshine as happiness. It's sunny out, we're like, it's a great day. We just feel like, what a beautiful day. In Eastern thinking, rain is a sign of blessing. If it's raining, they're like, our crops are gonna grow. Our land is going to be healthy. This is a sign that God is bringing us joy. And so they'll look at rain as a good thing. If you're reading in the Bible, in the Psalms, and it begins to talk about the rains, you're like, oh, that must be a sad time in their life. No, rain for them was joy. In the West, we're always thinking with logic and reason. But in the East, they're thinking with parable and prophecy. Over and over again, Jesus tells stories as he's teaching on earth and he's traveling around. And people would ask him a question. And they'd be like, so tell us about the next life. 
Is there, you know, what should we do with ourselves? And he's like, let me tell you a story. He never gives them the answer. They're just like, just give me an answer. And I remember going to seminary where we sit down and we talk about systematic theology and how can we put all the boxes together. And Jesus is very frustrating in that because he just doesn't sit down and say, here's what God looks like. Here's what you need to do. He says, let me tell you a story. And then I want you to wrestle with this story. I want it to evoke an emotional response. I want you to become someone different as you wrestle with what I say. Not just learn some information. And in the West, we're always about, just tell me something new. Tell me what I need to know. I'll decide whether or not I want to do it. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. The Eastern way of thinking is, I'm going to come at you with a story. I'm going to slip behind your intellect, and I'm going to wrestle with your emotion and with your heart. And part of the reason why the Bible is confusing for our culture, for us, is not the Bible's fault. It's all fault. We're coming from a very different perspective than the Bible is writing to. See, we're Western. We're educated. We're rich compared to most of the world. We're democratic. All those things are different than what the writers of the Bible were coming from. Many times they were very poor. Many times they had no level of education like we do. They certainly weren't from a democratic society. They lived under either the Roman Empire or under a king. So all their thinking comes from a completely different world than our thinking does. And yet, when most of us open up the Bible, we think, I'm going to think like a Westerner, and I'm going to pull something out of here and immediately know what they mean. We need to approach this, not like we're reading this, but like someone just handed us this. And we're like, what is this thing? You know, all of a sudden you have to read it a little bit more differently because you recognize it's not from here. It's from somewhere else. And really, the West struggles understanding the Bible, but the rest of the world still thinks a lot like this. If you look at people in Asia and in Africa, you see people who still resonate with the Bible because they're still living in a world that thinks like this. See, the, the Jewish people saw the text of Scripture as a way to meditate on the mystery that is God. They would take a passage and they would just soak in it over and over again to understand this mystery of who is God, what is he like. We want a Cliff Notes Bible. We want the Hot Pocket Bible. We're like, can I put it in and it's done in two minutes and I can eat it, you know? And uh, the Jewish writers, they weren't about giving you the quick and easy path to get to the answer you want. They want you to wrestle with it. They want you to uh, struggle with the text a little bit, to spend some time in it. When you read the Bible, don't assume you understand the culture. A few years ago, I had a chance to go to Costa Rica. And uh, while we were down there, I was working with a missionary who's working uh, down there. And um, I was standing there on the street corner. And a lot of times, I'm kind of an introvert, especially in places I don't know. And I feel you know, kind of like I don't fit in or I don't know what I should be doing. So I put my hands down in my pocket. And I had some change in my pocket. And so I jingled some of my change, you know, just never, he said, don't do that. And I was like, oh, why? Like, I mean, I tend to nervously put my hands in my pocket. He goes, in this culture, if you jingle change in your pocket, that means you're looking for a prostitute. And I was like, oh, man. You know, I like pull my hands out of my pocket real fast. And that's, that's something insignificant, inconsequential here. We'll put our hands in our pocket, and we have some change. It'll jingle, and it's no big deal here, right? No prostitutes come running out from Havertown when we do that. But in Costa Rica, it was completely different. It was a different culture, and they had a different view about something that I saw as inconsequential. 
When we approach the Bible, we need to see ourselves as foreigners in a foreign land with a different way of thinking and think, this thing that they're doing, why are they doing that? Because it may seem inconsequential to me, but it fits into their culture, even if it doesn't fit into mine. So what are we going to do with this? What I want to encourage you to do this week is try some things where you just dwell in a text instead of moving on. Now, I know some people read through the Bible in a year. Awesome. But I think sometimes we rush too fast through things. And what the Jewish readers and writers of Scripture did was they would stay in a passage and just soak in it for a while. So this week, what I want to encourage you to do is find a passage in the Bible, go to it, and start asking questions instead of making assumptions. When you read through the New Testament and it says there was a lawyer, don't assume that it was a lawyer like we think today. Ask, what did a lawyer look like? What did a lawyer do in this culture and context? Who were they talking about? Ask questions instead of making assumptions. Assume the Bible is a foreign culture and land. And then meditate on the mystery instead of moving on. Just soak in the passage. Don't read it once just to be like, okay, I read that, I know it. Read it over and over again. And read it over and over again in different translations. Because it'll give you a different perspective on what's being said. I've been practicing this week and it's really hard for me because I'm used to, I've read this, I move on to the next chapter, I read it, I move on to the next thing and then I'm jumping over here and it's hard for me to stop and stay in one place and really resonate with the text. I've been reading the passage out loud over and over again, just seven verses in Zechariah chapter one, which is a weird place to choose, but I just chose there and I said, I'm gonna stay here and read this over and over again. And what I began to realize is as I read it more and more, I began to think about it even when I wasn't reading it. And I began to, as I was falling asleep, just whisper some of those verses. Uh, in the passage in Zechariah chapter 1, God says this, Remember me, because I still remember you. And then a little bit longer, he says, If you run from my commands, they will overtake you. But if you run to my commands, they'll embrace you. And the first 20 times I read that, I didn't even catch that. Because I just read through and I got the information. They've been bad, he's calling them back to him. But as I read it more and more, it begins to resonate with me. Oh, that's what's going on here. This is what he's saying. We need to engage the text as our Eastern forefathers would. We need to move reading the Bible from an academic exercise where we just want to gather information into a spiritual experience where we're trying to grapple with this mystery that is God. Don't rush. Everything in our Western world is rushed. We rush from everything. Everything is, well, it's scheduled and I've got the next thing to do and we live in high-paced society and when I'm answering emails, I'm also getting text messages and I'm jumping between all these different things and we're multitasking. Our Eastern forefathers would have taken time to soak up and stay in one spot, to relish who God was in that passage. Don't try to conquer the text and move on. Stay until the, in the text until it begins to conquer you. And then, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that the Bible comes from a different culture. It comes from a different point of view. And it's written in a different way than we think. And Lord, I pray that you will remind us that a lot of times we're confused with the Bible. Not because the Bible is confusing, but because we're living in a radically different culture. A radically different way of thinking than what the Bible is written in. And God, I pray that you will give us curious minds to sit and soak in the word of God and, and not just rush on and try to get to the next point or learn the next thing.
God, forgive me for so often just simply looking at the Bible for what knowledge I can gain before moving on to the next idea. And instead, Lord, give me the patience to sit and meditate on your word. Lord, I pray this week that we will ask questions of the text instead of making assumptions. Lord, I pray that we will meditate on the passage and just soak in it, to read it over and over again, to read it out loud, to read it in different translations. And Lord, I pray that it, it imprints onto our hearts so that we begin to whisper it, and we begin to wrestle with who you are and how much you love us. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus would pray.